It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. From time to time, we check in with our pals at the AV Club to help us find the diamonds among the quartz in the world of pop culture. Uh, joining us this time around, Nathan Rabin and Keith Phipps. Uh, gentlemen, welcome back to the Sound of Young America. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having yeah, us. Thanks for having us. Keith, let's talk about the new box set of Apple Records recordings. This is uh, the record label made famous, of course, by the Beatles, but also home to uh, a number of other artists. In fact, I just the other day interviewed Ronnie Spector and played uh, a great record that she recorded for Apple Records. Um, Let's hear a clip of uh, My Sweet Lord as recorded by Billy Preston. So, Keith, this is a, a very interesting and specific niche of the history of popular music. Um, what did you really like about it? Well, you know, I'm still digging my way through all 17 discs of it, to be to be honest. Um, I think it's just such a uh, – and, and, you know, what I've heard is kind of um, – is there, there's sort of uh, the results are kind of odd. Uh, I mean, Apple was formed toward the end of the Beatles' existence, and, and what you have here is kind of the children of divorced parents, and the label kind of carried on for a little while after the band, and it didn't necessarily have an identity beyond the Beatles or one of the Beatles or some pairings of the Beatles uh, like this. So you, so you get, uh, you know, amazing classics like Bad Fingers, uh, uh, No Dice and Straight Up, these sort of these these cornerstones of power pop and and uh, interesting albums from by a singer named Mary Hopkin that everyone liked and had a few hits. And Billy Preston, who's, of course, uh, um, was one of many fifth Beatles and also recorded a few albums for them. But you also get uh, the Radha Krishna Temple. Uh, you, you get um, James Taylor's first album next to things like the Radha Krishna uh, te- uh, Temple recordings. Though it does kind of invalidate the whole project that does not have Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Cold Band, the movie, the soundtrack. <laughs> Just because it had nothing to do with the Beatles and came out many, many years later. That's I find true. that to be pretty, pretty problematic in its own right. It was actually on Casablanca Records, if I'm not mistaken. That's true. <laughs> um Nathan Rabin, let's talk about uh, one of your, we'll say, pseudo-colleagues at The Onion, uh, Maria Schneider, who for many years has written, um, ha- has written this character for The Onion called Gene uh, Tisdale, who is, oh, gosh, I-, I don't even know how to describe her. How, how would you describe the-, the sorry sad sack that is Gene Tisdale? Well, she's The Onion's uh, human interest. Uh sort of columnist. She kind of writes about, you know, sort of uh, goofy day-to-day sorts of things. And um, sort of underneath this sort of very cheery sort of banal facade, there's just this agonizing sadness. Sort of the column is about sort of the um, everyday tragedy of life. Um, so it has kind of a, there's a review on Amazon, they refer to it as sort of, um, you know, deep despair with kind of a candy-coated shell. Um, and that's definitely uh, sort of something that comes out a lot fuller in A Book of Gene's Own, which is 
the first uh, Onion book to be an actual comedy book and not just straight-up news reprints. Keith, let's talk a little bit about one of the greatest films ever made, Metropolis, which is out in a new version on DVD. Now, because this film was made so early in the history of film, um, it has been released and re-released in about a dozen trillion uh, different versions uh, featuring different footage and different types of transfers and different remasters and so on and so forth. Um, what's special about this new version? Well, it's quite watchable. I the first time I saw <laughs> Metropolis was on a, a VHS tape I bought from, from Kmart, which had uh, no soundtrack to it whatsoever. And, and, and I think uh, every other frame seemed to be uh, half black and half white with some blotches moving in the middle. Uh, so this was a, you know, this is a vast improvement over, over a version of, uh, of the versions that most of us have seen over the years. Uh, they found uh, almost a half hour of additional footage, like kind of somewhere in the vaults in Buenos Aires of all places. Um, so it's just kind of as close to a definitive version as you're going to get of this film. And what I like about this version is that the extra footage really kind of fills it out in some interesting ways. Like the plot feels smoother. Uh, it makes more sense. Uh, just, just, as a, just as a narrative, it makes more sense. And the pace feels a little bit better as well. It's one of those instances where adding, um, adding footage to a movie actually makes it feel like it moves faster. Now, what is the nature of this footage that was found in the vault in Buenos Aires? Is this... Is this like uh, stuff that just nobody that nobody had ever found? Was this stuff who, who cut this from the movie originally, or how did it get cut out of the movie originally? What, what's the story with it? Simple version of it, and it's the only version I really understand uh, myself. Is that uh, the the film premiered in Berlin? And it was, if not the most expensive film made in Germany at the time, close to it. And it did not do very well. It, it, it premiered to much fanfare, but very little audience interest. So before it really played anywhere else, I believe even in Germany, it was pulled from theaters and cut significantly. And what we've seen over the years has been um, variations on the version that circulated after that, which was much shorter. And then I believe made shorter still for some releases. So uh, this is as close to the original um, what you would see on premiere night in, in Berlin uh, as, as, as we're going to get, I believe. But then, but then who knows? Because, uh, you know, the people said that in 2002 and suddenly there's a half hour. So maybe there's, there's hours and hours more for it, of Metropolis waiting to be seen. They also restored the diamond smuggling subplot uh, that they cut from the original version, I guess, for time. Yeah, that was that was weird. That was weird. And, and the, the, the bumbling comic uh, duo. <laughs> I didn't remember. I mean, all the versions that I had seen did not have Mr. Bean in them. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Or that strange musical number. Uh, that, that, was a, that was a real shock. Nathan Rabin, let's talk about this documentary called Best Worst Movie. Um, I met the director the other day. Is this guy named Michael Stevenson, really nice fellow. And he, as a child, was in this movie called Troll <laughs> Two. Um, in fact, I think we should uh, we should take we should take a listen to uh, a clip from the from the documentary Best Worst Movie. Hi, my name is Michael Paul Stevenson, and 18 years ago, I played the lead role of Joshua in the movie Troll Two. I hated this movie. I ran from this film. I wanted nothing to do with it. And then one day, my feelings about this movie changed. 
somehow I ended up as the child star in one of the worst films ever made. That's pretty cool. So Troll 2 is a movie so spectacularly horrible that it has uh, attracted quite a cult following. And it's interesting to think of the folks who, who made something so horrible coming back to it. Uh, what did you enjoy about watching this documentary with people revisiting what may be their the low artistic point in their careers? Well, I actually watched this before I watched Troll 2, and I wish that the order was reversed because you watch uh, Troll 2, and you think, my God, how on earth did this film ever get made? I mean, really, there's a sort of cognitive dissonance that somehow this thing exists which should not exist on any level um there are all sorts of weird incongruities for one thing it uh, doesn't actually have anything to do with troll it also does not have any actual trolls in it <laughs> uh, it's all about goblins and you think like how on earth did this get made like who were the lunatics who made this it's actually not a movie it's a hologram <laughs> yeah it really i mean like if you if you uh, didn't have like concrete evidence you'd think this was like some bizarre hallucination a lot of it's like this bizarre anti-vegetarian screed um i guess the screenwriter uh hated vegetarians so the bad guys are these um goblins um not trolls it should be noted who are vegetarians who eat half human half plant creatures that they create and no i'm not the world's foremost expert on vegetarianism or veganism but i would imagine if something was part human it probably would qualify as meat so you wonder like oh my god who are these people like how did this happen just this giant question mark and this answers all of those uh questions in a really really satisfying way and the thing that's amazing is they're all crazier than you would imagine like the the lead actor the the father was this dentist and on one level, he's kind of a normal guy. He never really did a lot of acting outside of Troll 2. It was not, you know, his gateway to uh, starring roles in big studio movies. So on one hand, he's a kind of a normal, you know, sort of showboating sort of fellow. But he also has this kind of pathological need for validation and for attention. And they take him to this uh, horror festival, the horror convention. And it's just this really kind of tragicomic scene where he's just kind of like standing there sitting there waiting for people to pay attention to him and they never do and there's this moment of incredible irony where he's talking about some of the other people there and he's like man can you imagine what that'd be like to just like be basking in the glow of something that you did 20 25 years ago and it's like well yes we're watching you right now because that's exactly what you're doing Keith, one of your picks is one that I was a little surprised when I saw it because um, you know you, you tend to you tend to be a classy type fella. Um, and your your final pick was the complete series on DVD of The Six Million Dollar Man. Now, um, it, does The Six Million Dollar Man have anything to teach us, show us uh, any artistic value uh, 30 years after uh, it finished its run? I think short answer, yes, even if it only applies to me. <laughs> uh, this was my favorite show when I, when I was four or five. And I mean, I was I was really into the Six Million Dollar Man, and then and then as as we've seen TV show after TV show reappear on DVD, I kept thinking, yeah, I'd like to see the Six Million Dollar Man. Why why can't I watch the Six Million Dollar Man? <laughs> uh, you know, we're 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 15 years into this DVD thing, and there's no Six Million Dollar Man, and suddenly I get a press release for every episode of the Six, six Million Dollar Man, and I, I request it, and uh, um, it's a little overwhelming to revisit it because. I find I don't have the patience for the shows I used to enjoy when I was four. 
like my my it's not that my attention span has gotten gotten um has gotten shorter it's just the this thing is paced like you wouldn't believe like um i mean it's just so much footage of just the hero walking around as 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 was the style at the time in 70s tv shows well you know you couldn't go from one destination to the other without be you know showing the audience every step of the way usually to the company of some sort of bongo music um so that's sort of it's sort of fascinating to to revisit i think as sort of a, a an example of the perils of nostalgia i think it's a wonderful it's a wonderful lesson that uh, uh perhaps just dipping your toe back into things you used to be used to enjoy is better off than better you're better off doing that than jumping in the deep end let's hear a clip from the six million dollar man jamie jamie Where'd she go? The back gate's open. She must be headed for town. I've got to stop her. <laughs> How much six million dollar man having received for free, and I presume, given <laughs> that you're a member of the media, uh, a, a complete series box set? Did you actually make it through, Keith? Well, I. Let me get the honest answer at this point <laughs> is one episode. But I, I just got it in the mail. So I, I chose one that seemed like I can't miss. This is going to restore. This is going to remind me of everything I loved about this, this show. And it's one in which uh, Steve Austin, uh, as played by Lee Majors, who in this episode, as he did in some episodes, has a mustache, uh, a, dapper, <laughs> a dapper little mustache, goes to an island populated by killer chimps, which... <laughs> You think you you can't really mess with the, that kind of plot description, and yet it it involves kind of like sort of the the lesser seasons of Lost. So much of this episode involves him walking from one end of the island to the to the other for, for seemingly uh, no end, and somehow despite having killer chimps, there's like one sort of half-hearted fight with a chimp. The rest of it, he's dealing with his friend who's poisoned. And in, in sort of, as seems sort of inevitable in every 70s action show, at one point someone gets stuck in quicksand. Like, <laughs> like quicksand is so much more prevalent on 70s television than it is anywhere else in the world, I believe. Uh, and and, and here, here it is yet again. When in doubt, get someone stuck in quicksand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and, and one thing I also, other thing I like about this show is that Despite his superpowers, like we have certain expectations of superheroes today, um, mostly Steve Austin just ends up having to run somewhere quickly or lift <laughs> something heavy. He's not really taxed beyond that. Uh, the limits of the budget, I think, I think, kind of uh, put a put a, a cap on how how amazing his uh, powers could be. But he's bigger, stronger, faster. He is. He is. That opening credit sequence is still um, astoundingly uh, uh, effective. Nathan, this is the holiday season, so I feel like I can't let this segment go by without letting people know that you have a brand new AV Club branded book out called My Year of Flops. You watched uh, hundreds of movies that were characterized as flops uh, commercially, artistically, and et cetera, and judged whether uh, they deserved their flop status or not. Um, If there was one of these hundreds of movies uh, that you watched that was widely regarded as a a flop that you felt deserved your defense, uh, which one would it be? That is a good question. Uh, one that kind of springs to mind is Joe versus the Volcano, which kind of has ambiguous status as a flop. Um, as John Patrick Shanley, who I interviewed uh, for the book, uh, said it actually made back its money, um, but it opened opposite Pretty Woman. 
and I think the idea was the movie with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, executive produced by um, Steven Spielberg and directed by the Academy Award-winning screenwriter of Moonstruck, would do very well. And this movie about a prostitute who falls in love and has a heart of gold, uh, starring you know Richard Gere in an unknown, uh, would not do so well. And it was actually kind of the reverse. But if you look at it now, Jervis uh, of the Volcano is kind of this sort of life-affirming fable. Um, this incredibly beautifully shot, beautifully written. It really has this kind of fairy tale quality that's utterly beguiling. And I actually didn't like it that much when I saw it the first time uh, when I was 14 years old. Um, but when I rewatched it for the series, I was um, enchanted, if I can use a very curly word. Well, uh, Keith, Nathan, thank you so much for taking the time, as always. Oh, it's our pleasure. Yep, thanks. Nathan Rabin and Keith Phipps are writers and editors at the AV Club. You can find them online at avclub.com. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by Smith Micro Software, makers of Stuff It Deluxe, designed to move files simply and securely wherever customers want them to go. For Mac and PC, online at stuffit.com. Coverage of the world of comedy on The Sound of Young America is supported by Humber College, offering a two-year program dedicated to comedy. Students learn stand-up, improv, acting, and writing skills and perform in the heart of Toronto. At Humber, we make funny people funnier. More information at humbercomedy.com.